So I was prepping for today's message. A bunch of songs came to mind. I'm going to share them with you. 96 Tears by Question Mark and the Mysterians. Mickey by Tony Basil. Come on Eileen by Dexie's Midnight Runners. Grooves in the Heart by Delight. And 99 Luff Balloons by Nina. What do all those songs have in common? One hit wonders, bing, 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 the man wears a prize. All these songs are by bands who made a huge splash with these individual songs and never, ever, ever hit it big again. And it made me think of M. Night Shyamalan. (laughs) The Sixth Sense, an amazing movie, a beautiful movie. It managed to bring together so many different strands and genres. It was authentically scary and also authentically moving. And with that big surprise at the end that was so glorious before it became his move, what he did at the end of his movies. But I started to get the feeling after watching The Happening this past week, which is an absurdly bad movie on so many different levels. (laughs) An absurdly bad movie. The writing, the acting... I've never, the music, it was like it was a different film was showing its soundtrack at the same time that the movie was going on on the screen. It was unbelievably poor. So I started to get a sense that maybe The Sixth Sense was M. Night Shyamalan's one hit. And now the wonder is, whew, all gone. The movie's basic premise is this. The earth has grown tired of you, of you and me. It's a revenge fantasy in a lot of ways. The earth is tired of us, we've polluted too much, done too much stuff seemingly, and so the earth, the natural world, is fighting back. Now, I do have to say, it starts with a really, really interesting idea, which is that there is a toxin released from the natural world, particularly presented along this eastern seaboard, of which we are a part. It starts in New York, and of course, M. Night Shyamalan always brings it back to Philly. Rittenhouse Square is where it hits here. Areas where concentrated people are living in urban areas. And instead, instead of like the traditional horror movie where the zombies, you know, get eaten by, uh, the, the regular people got eaten by other zombies and then they become zombies and they go out and eat the brains of other people, instead of homicide, what actually happens in this movie is what the Greeks called thanatos. The death instinct in us is activated. And so when this toxic is released, what happens is that people, the first thing they do is they kill themselves. Now I have a theory about this movie, which is that The acting was intentionally bad. Hear me out on this. The acting was intentionally bad because the kind of scenario that M. Night Shyamalan is trying to spell out, if we actually cared about the people on the screen, it would be so horrific. He's trying to distance us from caring, giving anything at all about the lives that are lost. And we are talking about millions of people who die in this film. We are talking about the end of life as we know it. And so I think what he's chosen to do is say, you know what? Don't act your way out of a paper bag because I don't want them to care about you because if they did, then what I was trying to tell in this story might really hit home and people would be horrified at me and horrified with me. But instead of registering any horror, it's kind of like, eh, what if the end of the world as we knew it came to an end and everybody decided to snooze through it, which is what half the theater was doing when they were laughing unintentionally when I was there. Now, it's a science fiction, science fiction e kind of story. And science fiction has always, always had a spiritual dimension. This is a story of uncreation. 
the first or one of the founding stories in the Western tradition about how creation came to be is the Genesis story, the myth of our origins. And in the beginning, there is the story. In the beginning, in the literal beginning, there is the story. God's breath, God's ruah, the spirit, the wind, as it is said in that myth, it breathes itself into the clay and animates it and lifts it up. In the happening, it's exactly the reverse. Here the wind starts to blow, and you know the next thing is, you're a goner. It's all over. See, this is symbolized also by what happens after the affliction, is after the toxin hits, very clear symbolism, what the characters start to do, even before they start to off themselves. They start to walk backward for some reason. What he's saying is, this is the unmaking of creation. Creation is back, back, beep, 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 backing up the truck and saying we're ready to unload all this unnecessary stuff we have on us. Let's get rid of all this dead weight. Creation is unmaking itself to get rid of us because we have become the enemy and it is time for us to be, and this is what the movie's really talking about, exterminated. We've become that much of a parasite. So really what the happening is, and it doesn't want it to take it too seriously, but what it is is an apocalypse. It's a thousands-of-year-old tradition about how the world will come to an end. And it isn't always violent, although it often is. Here are the words of the book of Joel, who's a Hebrew prophet, writing at a long time ago, 200, uh, excuse me, 2,500 years ago, at a time in which divisions, especially in Israelite society, really kept people apart. And their apocalyptic vision was that these divisions would be overturned overnight. They have the divine saying, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even the male and the female slaves, in those days I will pour out my spirit. Creation's being unmade, but in a way that actually might be healthy in this vision. The book of Revelation. So often you've heard about that book, maybe. Left Behind series, if you know anything about that. That's where supposedly it comes from, although the Left Behind series is horrible theology. Well, the Left Behind series, what it draws upon this book of Revelation, in fact, there are some moments in it that are really quite moving. Tom Hanks, if you remember when he accepted the Oscar that he won for Philadelphia in 1994, had a vision of all those people who he had represented in the movie who had died. And he was drawing very directly upon this passage from Revelation when creation is unmade. And God will be with the people. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. Sort of a beautiful pastoral vision, even if you don't buy the whole passage. But unfortunately, apocalyptic literature is often brutal and violent and deadly and destructive. I remember when I was back in seminary taking a course in the New Testament scriptures and the gospel, and I had a professor who was talking about, not even to get into the passage because it's not all that important, but I think it's about the 11th, 12th chapter of Mark. And what happens is a little mini apocalypse. Jesus has a vision of the earth being remade entirely new. And I'll never forget the term that he used to describe it. He said, this is a perfect example of a theology of resentment. A theology of resentment. Now, this fellow was an African-American Bible professor who lived and could remember physically what it was like to grow up in the Jim Crow South. And if anyone was entitled to some resentment, he was. 
But he found nothing at all positive in this theology of resentment. It's the same spirit that you find in the Left Behind books. How many of you know anything about those books? Raise your hand. Well, basically, it's the idea. And there's like three different types. I think this is pre-millennial rapturism. I don't know. I don't know my evangelicalism well enough to actually describe this exactly without the book in front of me. But basically, the idea is that those who are completely holy have already been like a pneumatic tube right up to God. The rapture has happened. And the rest of us, especially us as Unitarian Universalists and liberal religion folks, we're left behind. And then we have to figure it out for ourselves to see if we can finally get on the right side of history before the final, final apocalypse comes. It is very much a theology of resentment. And most, by the way, mainstream Christians absolutely dismiss the poor, poor theology of left behind because it is a theology of resentment. It says, you know what? A punishment is coming. Better get on the right side of God, the right side of history, or you are going to get the biggest smackdown that ever was or ever could be. See, the apocalypse has this dreadful kind of hope, a hope that the only way left to save the village is by burning it down to the ground. It says we can't learn until we have been punished so much that we have no other choice but to change. That the only true choice for goodness we can make is under the threat of coercion, the threat of violence, imperiling our very, very lives. And I have to say this is one of the hallmarks of addicted religion, of addicted people, of addicted institutions, and of, yes, addicted nations. That we think we are only capable of learning when the smackdown time comes under the threat of fear or under the threat of violence or punishment. But i got to believe, and I've seen it too often in my life and other people's lives, that fear itself deforms our character rather than shaping and molding our character. It's like Springsteen saying, you end up like a dog that's been beat too much or you spend up half your life just covering up. You know, you're cowering because the punishment comes and the punishment comes, and that doesn't make you any better. It makes you very pliable. It makes you very suggestible. It makes you do a lot of things you wouldn't do if you were in your right mind. I think it was uh, Alice Walker, author of Color Purple, said, and she emerged out of this very kind of apocalyptic Christianity before she grew into a different kind of spirituality. She said of it, the only reason you want to get to heaven is because you've been driven out of your minds with fear. She knows how unhealthy that is. Fearful people don't make wise choices. Fearful people make choices that really only have one end. It is to remove the threat and the punishment and remove the thing that offends and is causing us to be fearful by any means necessary. By any means necessary, even if it's not at all healthy. Unfortunately, religion has been far too complicit in its history in terms of abetting and moving forward this kind of fearful apocalypticism. Any of you ever heard of the idea of the hell house? You ever heard of the hell house? Well, I first heard of the hell house and now a bunch of uh, former born-again uh, Christians who are acting in Hollywood and trying to make a name for themselves have done an ironic version of hell house, but it wasn't intended to be ironic to begin with. I was serving in southeast Florida, my first ministry, and around Halloween time, I want to say it was 1999 or 2000, I got a letter from a local uh, evangelical church. And what they said, there was a flyer in there, almost sort of a packet they sent. They said, we are starting this year's hell house again. And the pastor went on to exclaim with exclamation points, almost excitedly as you could. He said, no other evangelical initiative for bringing people to Christ. Not Christmas, not Easter, brings as many people to Christ every year as our hell house does. 
You see what the hell house is. It is a representation of all the different, quote unquote, sins that they think. There's the gay room and the hell house and there's the abortion room and the hell house and there's the you do the bad thing when you're a teenager room in the hell house. And the goal, the goal is to scare literally the bejesus out of you so they can scare the Jesus into you. What an immature form of theology. And although it's cruder, it actually has roots that go back hundreds of centuries John Edwards, I lived in the John Edwards house when I was at Yale Divinity School, one of America's founding preachers. His most famous message of the 1700s was sinners in the hands of an angry God. You're sort of like dangling over the pits with the flames licking, licking at our bare feet, singeing, looking up, saying only you, only you can save us. We can do nothing. We are so reprobate. We are so awful. Isn't it great to be not in that kind of church? I mean, I don't like to judge individual believers, and I have friends who are evangelical Christians. I do. But this kind of fundamentalism that says the only way to get to heaven is to scare, excuse my language, the crap out of yourself, I've got to believe that that is just not a healthy way to live. Of course, there are many different perspectives upon how the world might end, or indeed what we might know about that. And actually, one of my favorites and it's really sort of a beautiful non-answer, comes from the song we just heard from Ecclesiastes 3. Right after that turn, turn, turn passage in which everything has a time and a season, it's not just about rushing to the end point. Everything has its time. This is what Ecclesiastes 3.11 says. It's quite humble about our ability to read the tea leaves. It says, God has made everything suitable for its time. Moreover, the divine has put a sense of past and future into our minds. And then the key line, yet we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. We cannot find out. What it's saying is that in the sandwich of life, we're always the spread in between the bread. What it's saying is that we are the books in between the bookends. We live in the middle of the story. We're not supposed to rush ahead fearfully, even sometimes the seeming hope that really is fear at its base. We're not supposed to rush ahead. Instead, the voice of Ecclesiastes has a different spiritual message. Live creatively here and now in whatever season you find yourself in life. Live creatively and accept the uncertainty. But for some, that's just not enough. For some, it has to be that living in the middle of the story can never seem enough, and they want to race ahead to the end, especially in trying times such as these. And by the way, every age that has ever been, including even the 1950s, thought that they were living in the most trying time that ever was. I think if we could do one thing, it would be to cure ourselves of the idea that our age, as many threats as it has, is really all that different from anything that came before it. There are always threats. There are always promises. We always live in the middle of the story. But for some people, that's not enough. And they have to be the doomsayers. They have to say, we're going to get on the right side of the doom, either spiritually or socially. And so I was really interested to see this past Sunday, in the, a week ago, the Sunday Week in Review in the New York Times. It's tough times now. There's food shortages. Price of gas is going up, up, up. We know that. And so some people are starting to ask this question that they phrased in this way in the last week's times. Is doomsday upon us again? Is doomsday upon us again? 
And I want to read you from the story. And those of you who studied a little bit of economic theory or European uh, uh, history might recognize this name. Thomas Malthus, a British economist and demographer at the turn of the 19th century, he is being recalled to duty. His basic theory was that populations which grow geometrically will inevitably, inevitably outpace food production which grows uh, by math. Famine would result. The thought, this thought, has underlain all doomsday scenarios, both real and imagined, from the Great Irish Famine of 1845 to 1851 to the population bomb of 1968. But over the last 200 years, first with the Industrial Revolution and the Transportation Revolution and the Green Revolution, the Biotech Revolution, Malthus has been almost entirely discredited. The wrenching dislocations of the last few months do not change that, most experts say, but they do show the kinds of problems that emerge. And for those of you who are vegetarians, and I'm not, this next passage is going to make you real happy. The whole world has never come close to outpacing its ability to produce food. Right now, there is enough grain grown on earth to feed 10 billion vegetarians, says Joel Cohen who's the professor of populations at Rockefeller University and the author of a book called, and it sounds fascinating, How Many People Can the Earth Support? But the problem is, he says, is that much of that grain is being fed to cattle, who are the SUVs of the protein world, which are in turn guzzled by the world's wealthy. Some Americans are attracted to Malthusian doomsaying, the author continues. In the words of Dr. Tyler Cowan, an economist at George Mason University argues, we are attracted to Malthus because it's a preemptive way to hedge our fear. Prepare yourself for the worst, prepare yourself for the worst, and you might feel safer than when you are trying to be optimistic. Dr. Cohen of Rockefeller University sees it in even more sinister terms. Americans, some Americans, well, they like Malthus because he takes the blame off of us. He says, the problem, Malthus does, is that there are just too many poor people. It's their fault, not ours. Now, Malthus is to economics what fundamentalism is to religion. Both say that because life is mean, or truth is scarce, or love is almost non-existent, at least human love, then we have to start looking to dump all the dead weight that we can as quickly as we can. But universalism our tradition, our belief, where we come from, says that although life is difficult, love is still abundant. Wisdom is still rich. And that if we give our assent day after day, choice after choice to that love that we are given, to the wisdom that is ours and is our natural birthright, well then we can make a place at the welcome table for everyone and for anyone. Doomsaying is cheap, finally, but it has such great costs. By the way, there was a movie last year called The Mist from Stephen King. It had much kind of the same message as actually The Happening. It, by the way, also had the most bummer of an ending I have ever seen. It really stays with you. It's so depressing. But it's a much better movie than The Happening. And what it says, too, is that doomsaying is cheap and its costs are great. See, the greatest cost when we engage in this apocalyptic kind of way of looking at the world, we lose ourselves. We lose our imagination. 
we lose the capacity to remain in compassionate connection with this troubled world. When we maintain this compassionate connection to our own lives, we are able then to live meaningfully in the face of all that we cannot know. Fear, an apocalypse is nothing more than fear writ large, robs this creative capacity, this sustaining imagination from us. I mean, just imagine that I am up here fearful. I am retreating from you. I am holding myself close to myself because I do not want to let you in. Perhaps I will even turn my back to you. Maybe I'll look over here just to make sure you're not gaining on me every once in a while. <laughs> in this kind of tight, crouched pose, no imagination is possible. No abundance is possible. Because all we can do is just hold on for dear life, and it is a war of attrition anyway, to what we already have. All we can do is meet life from that defensive posture and our souls shut down. The stance of fear, whether in a body or a spirit, will always take us away from connection with each other. The opposite way of approaching life is saying that our choices matter. And again, like the message said, if you're a vegetarian, I'm not. Bravo. When I read this article, I started to think a little bit more about the implication of my lifestyle choices. It's not easy to think about that because that's where changes matter the most when they are personal and when they hit close to home and when you know that, yes, we are just one, but you know what? You can't ask anyone else to change in a way unless you are yourself willing to do so as well. Our choices matter. It is the opposite of the apocalyptic scenario. It is the opposite of saying we can only learn through fear, that we do not have to be coerced into goodness. We are called, especially in our tradition, to take our lives seriously, to take our moral choices seriously, not to give in to the apocalyptic hope, and it is a deformed hope that we are incapable of participating in our own salvation. There's a long history of this debate going back almost a thousand, thousands of years it dates back to the time of what we now know is the start of that concept of original sin that our ancestors rejected. There was, on the one side, the church father known as Augustine, or Augustine, if you grew up in Florida. On the other side, there was a fellow named Pelagius. Augustine said, there is no other choice for us to achieve wholeness, either in this world or the next, unless you folks, you accept the fact that you are, at your very base, absolute reprobates. Absolute reprobates. Any raise hands on that one? Good, I think you're in the right place. Pelagius said, no, something different. He said, God's grace is real, that this is a remarkable universe, and that we are called to become indeed something new. We are called to continue to grow as part of our creation, that we are ourselves. But Pelagius, Pelagius said this, that we can contribute to the process of our own becoming whole. Augustine said we brought nothing to the table. Now, we lost that debate. And it was one of the first steps towards eventually the heresy that Unitarian Universalism would become. And it's a proud heresy. <laughs> heresy just means, the Greek word just means to choose. We are people who can make responsible choices in our moral and spiritual lives. We can make responsible choices. The terms of the debate as they became after Augustine was on the one hand, God's perfection or your road to perdition. God's perfection 
or your road to perdition. I think those are false categories. I think those are false categories because everything is either all right or it is completely wrong. Rather, I think a more mature way of looking at the world is better or worse. Are we making things better? Or are we, through our living, making things worse? Unfortunately, we hear this false choice between perfection and perdition too often in our political speech as well, too. We either hear that we are the shining city on the hill, America is, or we are God's crown of all creation, light to the nations, almost sort of supplanting Israel, because that was supposedly the original light to all the nations. Or, on the right, we are slouching towards Sodom and Gomorrah, so decrepit. Or, on the left, we can do nothing but oppress other peoples all throughout the world. But these categories are far too simple. Rather, instead, if we are engaged in the act and in the asking of what will make things better or what will make things worse, we can see how much lies in our hands. And that brings us back to who we are called here to be at Wellsprings. This is, by the way, why spiritual practice is one of our core values. This is why spiritual practice matters so much to us and why you probably hear that word, those words coming out of my mouth more than any other from this pulpit. Because what spiritual practice invites us to do is to live mindfully every day of our lives, not look forward to some future utopian time or some apocalypse, but to say here and now, one day at a time, one choice at a time, one act of loving, kindness, and devotion at a time, And through these things, we will be good gardeners, good gardeners and cultivators of this creation for which we are stewards. It is very much the truth of what the Talmud said as well, that I know some of you know, that one who saves one life saves the world at the same time. See, spiritual practice calls us to be in the reality of each of our lives. That's what we're called here to do, to be a reality-based spiritual community. To see reality not and creation not as something fixed or static or done and we are just playing out the string. But to see it and that it of creation, that is us. To see creation open, open to our innovation and open to our flourishing. More punishment, more fear will not save us. The increasing likelihood of punishment only leads to this, the greater likelihood of more punishment. Fear begets only more fear. The religious, the economic, the ecological, as M. Night Shyamalan seems to be talking about, those kinds of apocalypse, they would goad us into goodness at a time at which, unfortunately, it is far too late to make any difference. And creation is, by that point, undoing itself. One of my favorite, favorite statements, favorite words about the power of the imagination the power of the imagination to connect us to what is really real comes from the best play I've ever seen. Six Degrees of Separation. Came out the late 80s, early 90s. Some of you may have seen it or know about it or saw the movie. And in it, there's a monologue, almost sort of Shakespearean in quality. A monologue in which one of the characters is talking about the value of the imagination and particularly how he came to understand it through reading Catcher in the Rye. These are his words. But the aura around this book of J.D. Salinger's, and by the way, it seems to be only read by young men, and frankly, anyone but young men should read it. This book of Challenger's 
It mirrors like a funhouse mirror and amplifies like a distorted speaker one of the great tragedies of our times, which is the dying and death of the imagination. The imagination has been so debased that imagination, being imaginative, rather than being the very linchpin of our existence, now stands as a synonym for something outside of ourselves, like science fiction or some new use for tangerine slices on raw pork chops. What an imaginative summer recipe. And Star Wars, so imaginative. And Star Trek, so imaginative. And Lord of the Rings, all those dwarves, so imaginative. The imagination has moved out of the realm of being our link, our most personal link with our inner lives and the world outside that world, this world we share. I believe that the imagination is the passport we create to take us to the real world. Jung said that the greatest sin, the greatest sin is to be unconscious. The greatest sin is to be unconscious. Our boy Holden says, what scares me most is the other guy's face. It wouldn't be so bad if you could both be blindfolded. Most of the times, the faces we face are not really the other guy's face at all, but our own faces. And it is the worst kind of yellowness to be so scared of yourself, you put blindfolds on rather than deal with yourself. To face ourselves. That's the hard thing. The imagination. That is God's gift to make the act of self-examination bearable. To look at ourselves and upon ourselves with love and honesty. This is what authentic spiritual practices help us do. And it is also the basis of all true religion. Whatever the tradition, whatever the denomination, it is the basis very much of our tradition. That we can recognize that every day, each day in our lives that we are given is an ongoing call to sanctify the everyday. Not wait for some day, but to sanctify this day and to sustain the sacred in all of our life. Not to look for some fearful escape hatch masquerading as a fantasy, but to look and to find again and again and again and day after day and day after day and day after day. To find it always, that right at reality's very heart, at the very core of the core of life, there is hope and there is love sufficient for all of us. Amen. And may you live in blessing.